If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 124. I hope that you brought your Bible along. Psalm 124. We're in the midst of a, a series on the songs of ascent, the Psalms of ascent. It's uh, 15 Psalms uh, that were used in the Old Testament. It's when they went to the temple three times a year. And in the midst of this, we find out some things that are really important for us today. Psalm 120, we found out that we're in a, when we're in a crisis, God answers. When we're in distress, out of my distress, he starts out. And then what does he say? God answers. Psalm 121 talked about God's providence, that God is sovereignly in charge. God is not surprised about anything that's happening in America. He's not surprised about anything that's happening in Iran. He's not surprised by anything that's happening in your life or my life. God is in control. Psalm 122 says God is worthy of worship. We can worship him because he is worthy of that. Psalm 123 that we looked at last week, God teaches us how to serve. As they were walking up, it was, they were singing about the service that they needed to do because God served us. And we saw how Jesus even humbled himself and wrapped a, a towel around him and, and washed the disciples' feet on the night that he was betrayed. And as they're singing these songs, as they're coming up, uh, then, then they're learning some tremendous things. And today we're looking at help for hazardous duty. Fifteen steps, fifteen psalms, fifteen different things they could sing as they did this journey. But it's fifteen steps really to, to being a follower of Jesus Christ, to being a disciple. It's Discipleship 101 that they went over three times a year as they headed to the temple. And today we're talking about hazardous duty. Several years ago, Kathy and I, Kathy looked at me and she says, you're old, you need life insurance. And so we went to the life insurance agent and we got some life insurance and we already had some, but we were doing some other things. And, and he asked me this question, Do you, are you involved in any hazardous uh, activities, anything hazardous? And he started listing off things. Do you jump out of airplanes? I said, no, with or without parachutes. I don't do that. I'm not into skydiving. And, and he talked about bungee jumping. Do you wrap elastic cords around your feet and jump off a bridge? We're real sure that I don't do that. That's never going to happen in my lifetime. I was doing some research on bungee jumping, and, and it made me realize again why I don't want to do that. And then he said, scuba diving. I said, yes, I do that. And he says, oh, that means your insurance is going to be more expensive. Hazardous duty. You know what he didn't ask me? He didn't ask me if I was a Christian. He, he didn't, I wanted to say, yeah, I have hazardous duty. I'm a pastor. <laughs> it's about as hazardous as it becomes. You say, oh, come on, pastor. Really? Is, is, is following Christ hazardous? 11 of the 12 original disciples had violent deaths. You tell me another profession where that happened. In the last 50 years, we're, we're, we have found out that there are more Christians that have been killed in the last 50 years in the previous 500 years. Is it hazardous to be a believer? Well, not in America, maybe, but around the world, is it hazardous to be a believer? If you're in China and you have a Bible, it's illegal. They can put you in prison and, and throw away the key. Is it hazardous to follow Jesus Christ? Well, let me point to the New Testament, 1 Peter. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, be self-controlled and alert. Be disciplined, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In the Old Testament, was it hazardous? Yes. In the New Testament, is it hazardous? There's a lion out there. You know that I love to ride bicycles. I was out on the river trail. I was down by the river trail, and I heard this rustling in the grass to one side of the river trail. And all of a sudden, I saw this rabbit come flying across the, the path, and I thought, oh, cute little bunny. I'm glad I didn't hit it. And about that time, there came, there came this lion 
this bobcat came running after the rabbit. There was more rustling, and then it got quiet. It got quiet because I was pedaling so hard to get away from that spot. He wasn't looking to devour me, but sometimes we feel like the rabbit with the, with the bobcat, with the coyote, with, with something that's after us, don't we? And the, and the Lord says, listen, that's exactly what's happening to you. Beth Moore says it this way, and, and as you're looking at this psalm, you're going to see this. God is entirely, wholeheartedly, unwaveringly on your side. You see, it's not about the hazards we face, but it's the help we experience that shapes our life. That's where I'm going with this message. It's not about the hazards we face. We have signed up for hazardous duty. It's not about the hazards. It's the help that comes alongside us that shapes who we are. Take a look at the psalm. We're going we're to look at two things. We need to open our eyes to the hazards that we face. Psalm 124, the first seven verses, this is what, how it says. Uh, this is how it goes. If the Lord had not been our side... Let Israel say, I want to stop there for just a second. This is one of these songs, just what we did. I said, come on, church, sing this song. That's exactly what this is saying. If the Lord had not been on our side, come on, church, say it with me. If the Lord had not been on our side. Yeah, some of you actually did it. That's amazing. If the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Again, thinking of Israel. Much of Israel is in a desert community, and, and in the desert community, the, the rains came a couple of months a year, and in that couple of months, I, we don't know about rains coming a couple of months. We're supposed to have rain now, but it's not happening. But if you, if you live in the desert, this thing's bugging me. Uh, if you live in the desert and, and the rains begin to engulf you and, and they begin to, to overwhelm you, sometimes you're out in the desert and it looks dry and all of a sudden they have a flash flood and the, the rains just come through and they sweep through and they sweep everything in their path. Go back to verse 6. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowl or snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. I want to look this, at some of the hazards, and he mentions three specific things. The first one is, is that there's this anger. We face engulfing anger. We face engulfing anger. Have you ever been engulfed by something, especially in anger? Ever experienced anger that overwhelms, that swallows you? Like that flash flood that comes flying through the desert? I was raised by a mother who was from the South, and my mother was, was a pretty gentle, pretty quiet, calm person, but every now and then, Southern women do have a temper. I don't know if you noticed that, but my mother from the South every now and then would get mad, and she had an expression, and I never could figure out what it meant. This is what she'd say, I'm so angry, I could spit. Now, I'd never seen my mother spit a single time. I mean, I'd see her, you know, kind of you know, little, little things coming out of her mouth when she was yelling at me, but never te technically spitting. She didn't mean it that way. Just all of this kind of foamy stuff coming out of her mouth when she got mad. <laughs> Just because she had five boys, I don't think that had anything to do with her anger problem. Anger is an emotion we should feel when something isn't right. Anger is not necessarily, we, we always look at anger from a negative perspective, but anger actually, there's a time for anger. 
If you see someone abusing an, an animal, if you see someone abusing a child, if you see someone doing something that is wrong, you should feel angry. The Lord, Jesus, got angry when, they, when He came into the temple and they were doing everything except worship. They were doing everything except evangelism. They were doing everything except studying God's Word. He got angry and what did He do? He cleared the temple at the beginning of His ministry and the end of His ministry. Twice he came through, and they didn't learn the first time, so three years later he came back to renew what he was trying to say to him. Don't you understand? God has said this is a house of prayer. This is a house of worship. This is a house where we, we come to, to find out about the Lord. Uh, Ephesians 4, 6 says, In your anger, do not sin. This is a different kind of anger that he's talking about here because it's anger not within us. It's anger from outside us. It's those who are angry at us. It's anger that harms Psalm 3, 1, the, the psalmist says, O oh Lord, how many are our foes? How many foes do we have? It reminds me, I, in one of the Indiana Jones, uh, uh, you know, that trilogy of movies, or more, I don't remember how many they've made now, but, but you know, Indiana Jones is there, and he's, he's just, he's cutting one person down, and he's doing this, and he's kicking another one, and he's getting off the, the, the car, and then somebody's trying to shoot him, and he does this, and he runs the car over the road, and, and he finally feels like he's gotten all of the enemies done, and he rounds the corner, and there's this huge mob of people coming out, and they all have the swords, and he turns to the person next to him. I don't remember which film, but basically the conversation is this. The person that's with him says, how come they're all angry at you? Is that the way your life feels sometimes? You have all of these people that keep coming at you. We face engulfing anger. Can an angry person do much damage? Oh, absolutely. Look at this, uh, Psalm, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 29, 22. It says, an angry man stirs up dissension. A hot-tempered one commits many sins. You may know this from personal experience. Either you're the one who's caused dissension or someone's caused it for you. And it just is it's like you can never get the equilibrium. It's like you're always walking on moving ground because someone's angry. Why are they so angry? Warren Wiersbe, in, in his commentary on this, uh, this chapter, says this, Satan hates us just because God loves us. It doesn't take anything more than that. When you sign up in God's family, when you say, I want to be a child of the king, the, Satan says, listen, if you're a child of the king, then, then, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. If you're a child of the king, in fact, not only do I not want to have anything to do with you, I'm going to make your life miserable. I'm going to do everything I can to make your life miserable. Warren Wiersbe goes on to say, some people vent their anger and their hatred of God at God's people. So not only is it Satan, but it's people who see us as Christians and say, I don't like what they stand for. They make me uncomfortable. They make me miserable. They, they're, they're judgmental, which just means that they have a right and a wrong. And sometimes that's what's happened to us. God never promises there won't be floods. Did you notice in this chapter it doesn't say there'll be no flood for you? No, it says when the flood, the flood would have engulfed us, the torrent. He talks about the raging waters. He talks about these things, this anger that's going to overcome us. Folks, listen to me. We're in a political season. And when you stand strong as a Christian and you say this is what, we, what the Bible says, this is what God says, this is what we stand for, people will be angry with you. And they get more and more angry, and they, they belittle us. God says he's on our side. Did you notice that? If the Lord had not been on our side. The Hebrew there, haya lanu, haya lanu, 
It's the past tense of another word that you may know called Emmanuel. God is with us. If he had not been with us. If God had not been with us, God is with us, Jesus Christ. We face unimaginable anger because God is for us, is with us. Isaiah 53 depicts this. When the suffering servant comes, it says that he's marred beyond uh, comprehension. We can't even recognize him. Isaiah 53 says that he took all of our suffering on him and the anger of the world was laid on him. How much much anger did Jesus bear for us? Uh, And Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us and he is for us, he's on our side, who can be against us? We face engulfing anger. Number two, we face vocal opposition. The the second thing he talks about, he says, listen, there are going to be men and it's like they have these swords. It's like they they have this, it's going to come out and it's just going to rip you to shreds. Have you ever had someone verbally rip you to shreds? Today? I mean, I mean, not today. Yeah, we we face a very vocal and devastating foe. Sometimes Satan seems to appear silent and, and he seems to work behind the scenes. Other times it's right in your face. Look at Psalm 57.4. Psalm 57.4 says, I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And we face this. And he says, listen, it's, it's like they're lions. It's, 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 it's like there's just this overwhelming thing that we're going to be torn by their teeth, we're going to be torn by their words, we're going to be shredded by them. And by the way, the Hebrew has 12 words for lion. They were, they were very serious about lions in Israel. Let me ask you this question. How would someone describe the words you use? Are they like sharp, sharp swords? Do they cut somebody else? Do, do, they, do, they, do the people need bandages after you walk away with your words? Is there something that you say on a regular basis to, to harm people, to hurt people? James 5, 6 says the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. And you say, Pastor, do words really matter? Uh, Let me quote a couple of things. President Ronald Reagan at the Brandenburg Gate, June 17, 1987, was giving a speech. He was standing at the Brandenburg Gate, the wall there in Berlin. And he said, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And when Ronald Reagan said that, things began to happen, and eventually the wall was destroyed. Do words really matter? Valentine's Day is coming. If you say the words, I love you, they matter. And if you don't say it, it also matters. People use words to label us as Christians, naive, ignorant, whiny, stupid, out of touch, hypocrites. I took every one of those words out of news reports this week when they were talking about believers and their stand. In contrast to that, just words. Eric uh, Metaxas, Eric Metaxas did something this last week. There was the National Day of Prayer, and he gave the keynote address in our, in our country's capital in Washington, D.C. I'm not, I'm not trying to be political, but I want to show you how much words 
can do. This is an article, Mark Joseph wrote this article about Eric Metaxas and, and what he said. If the organizers of the National Prayer Breakfast ever want a sitting president to attend their event again, they need to expect that any leader in his right mind is going to demand that he'll be allowed to see a copy of the keynote address that is traditionally given just before the president stands to speak. That's how devastating was the speech given by a little-known historical bi biographer named Eric Metaxas, whose clever wit and punchy hum humor barely disguised a series of heat-seeking missiles that were sent, intentionally or not, in the commander-in-chief's direction. Metaxas, a Yale graduate and humor writer who once wrote for the children's series Veggie Tales. I love, I love his resume. He began a speech with several jokes and stole the show early on when he noted that George W. Bush, often accused by his critics of being stupid and incurious and, and ill-read, had read Metaxas' weighty tome on the German theologian Bonhoeffer. He then proceeded to hand a copy to the sitting president while intoning, no pressure. Before the president could utter a word, it was Metaxas who delivered a devastating, albeit apparently unintentional, critique of God talk, recounting his own religious upbringing, which he described as culturally Christian, yet simultaneously full of phony religiosity. He said, and I quote, I thought I was a Christian, I guess I was lost. Standing mo no more than five feet from President Obama, whose binder had a, speak, a speech chock full of quotes from the good book, Metaxas said of Jesus, when he was tempted in the desert, who was the one throwing Bible verses at him? Satan. That is a perfect picture of dead religion, using the words of God to do the opposite of what God does. It's grotesque when you think about it. It's demonic. Keep in mind that when someone says, I am a Christian, it may mean absolutely nothing, Metaxas added for good measure, in case anybody missed his point. Metaxas, speaking er minutes earlier, had a radically different take on the centrality of both his deity and his faith, and although he never put down other faiths, he methodically recounted the story of what motivated the actions of the abolitionist William Wilberforce, noting the reason Wilberforce fought so hard was because around the time of his 25th birthday, he encountered Jesus Christ, he, he said. The idea to care for the poor or that slavery is wrong, these ideas are not normal human ideas. They are biblical ideas. William Wilberforce suddenly took the Bible so seriously that all of us are created in the image of God to care for the least of these. He could not continue without doing something. And af after carefully describing the inhumane treatment of both Jews and Africans by those claiming to be Christians, he asked, then, uh, he asked, then answered a question. You think you're better than the Germans of the World War II era? You're not, adding, whom do we say is not fully human today. Later he answered his own question. I would say the same thing about the unborn. Apart from God, we cannot see that they are persons. So those of us who know the unborn to be human beings are commanded by God to love those who, who do not yet see. We need to know that apart from God, we would be on the other side of that divide for fighting for what we believe is right. He concluded, this article concludes, the audience in that room was likely left with Metaxas' four-word condemnation ringing in their ears. Folks, God is not fooled. One last paragraph. 
How did they see what they saw, Metaxas asked, of those who bucked the religion of their times and took strong stands against slavery, against Nazis? There's just one word that will answer that. It's Jesus. He opens our eyes to his ideas, which are different from our own. Folks, listen to me. I'm not about politics. I'm about the Bible. In Germany, I am of German descent. My father was born in Germany. In Germany, the Christians did not stand up and say what Hitler was doing is wrong, and they killed so many Jews. And then they took the old, the infirmed, and the children. In America, when they said abortion was going to be legalized, we did nothing and we did not stand up, and now 40 million babies have been destroyed, have been killed, have been murdered. It's time to stand up. It's time to say it's wrong because words matter. We face vocal opposition, and sometimes it's okay to be silent, but sometimes it's not. It's time to stand up and say, and that's what the the people were saying in Psalm 124. Listen, Lord, it's time for us to call it what it really is. Here's the third thing. We face deceptive traps. We face deceptive traps. He says in in verse 6, verse 7, we have escaped like a bird out of a fowler's snare. Uh, Webster's Dictionary says a snare is a trap consisting of a noose. It's not just a, any snare. It's, it's a snare that has this noose that, that winds around the foot, around the neck. We face traps every day. How many of you have ever been caught in a... No, don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever seen a speed trap? A speed trap. You know what a speed trap is? You know what a speed trap is? It's called police officers enforcing the law. If you don't speed, guess what? You're never trapped. Oh, how about moral traps? We, we know the story of Joseph in Genesis. Uh, Joseph is, is brought into his employer, sold into slavery, and, and Potiphar buys him out of slavery and brings him home and, and eventually raises him up to be the butler, to be the one in charge of the checkbook. And Mrs. Potiphar keeps saying, Joseph, come on in, come see me. Just sit by my bed and talk to me. And Joseph says, no, this is a trap. In Genesis 39, 6-20, it tells a story. And in one of the verses, it says, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Folks, there's a financial trap out there. Every commercial that you're seeing on TV, oh, you need this new car. Oh, you need this new house. Oh, you need... We, our country has just gone through three years of revealing what a financial trap this is, and we still don't get it. 1 Timothy 6, 9, look at what it says. People who want to get rich fall into temptation. And what's the word? And a, what's the word? Say it. Trap. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. What snares has the Lord delivered you from? What snares has the Lord delivered you from? Let me ask you the question this way. What would you have been if the Lord had not been on your side? If the Lord had not interceded, if the Lord had not gotten you out of some of those traps, some of those things that, that, were, that were binding you, if, if that had not happened, what would you have been? What would you be like if you'd not come to Christ, if Christ had not begun to, to transform you from the inside out? What would you be like? Say, well, I don't know that it made any difference. Then you're still trapped. We face these deceptive traps. It's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of discipleship, of growing in Christ. And and I want you to look at one other thing. Look at verse 7. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we've escaped. Folks, the snare once and for all was broken at Calvary. On the cross, 
Jesus died in our place. He took our sins. He completely freed us if we will come to him and allow him to free us from that snare. And the deceptive snares are there. We face this engulfing anger. We face vocal opposition. We face deceptive traps in our life. We have hazardous duty. So what do we do? Look at the second part of this. One verse, open your heart to the help that's the key. Look at this. Look at the next line. Open your heart to the help God offers. What help has God offered? Look at the last verse. Our help is in the name. It's in the position. It's in the authority. Our help is in God. It's in who God is. It's in the name of, of Yahweh, Jehovah, of God, the Lord, the maker, the creator of heaven and earth. Open your heart to the help that God offers. I want to ask you two questions, and and you need to answer these questions. Number one, who or whom do I trust? Who do I trust? I was going to say whom, but that sounds so formal, even though it's probably technically right. Who do I trust? Where do you get your help? Where do you get your help? Uh, In our home, we we have this drill. Something comes on TV, somebody asks a question, and what we normally say is, go Google that. You know, uh, I was saddened to learn that a life was cut short last night by, I don't know if it was drugs, something else, but Whitney Houston, a a tremendous musician. When she was 17 years old, she was singing in her church choir. She was discovered. This woman had a a deep faith in Christ at one time, and, and her life was ravaged by drugs. And so when I heard about her dying yesterday, I went and I Googled it. How many, 170 to 200 million uh, albums and single records sold. Just an incredible amount of money. All the kind of fame you can imagine and, and beaten by her husband and left him. And I mean, what a tragedy. But I Googled it. Where do you go for help? Anybody here try to sell an Encyclopedia Britannica in a garage sale recently? Yeah. We don't go there anymore, do we? Because the, the technology has gone so fast, we don't, we don't do that anymore. And if you have a, a set of encyclopedias, uh, Sputnik is not still the, the, the number one thing that's going out in space. You see, the first line of Psalm 124 is repeated for emphasis. Do we really realize that God is on our side? If the Lord had not been on our side. Stop there for just a second. God is on our side. Come on, join in on this. If the Lord had not been on our side, and he's, and, and he's asking everybody, and you can imagine the thousands of people coming up to Jerusalem, and somebody starts out on, the, on Psalm 124, and says, if the Lord had not been on our side, hey, Israel, join in. And all of a sudden, this roar comes back. If the Lord had not been on our side... And it sounds so good, but do we live that way? Beth Moore, I referenced her early, earlier. She says this. We live most of our lives unconvinced that God is really for us. We have little trouble picturing ourselves on God's side, but for the life of us, we can't picture God stooping down enough to be on our side. Even though we'll say things and sing things to the contrary, we live as if we believe down in the hidden places in our hearts and in our minds that God at best tolerates us. And we're lucky at that. We may rarely admit it, but our actions, our anxieties, our anxieties, our fears, our insecurities suggest something else. Perhaps some of us don't so much feel as if God is against us as we just don't necessarily feel as if he's for us. 
we conclude that the only person God is truly for is himself, and rightly so. He should be for himself, we reason. Somewhere deep inside, I think we're secretly convinced that God created man with very high hopes, only to have them dashed by our dastardly deeds. Forget divine foreknowledge. Forget that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. We proved a terrible disappointment to God, but because he's faithful to his promise, his covenant, he's obligated to see the plan through to completion. Therefore, he tolerates us because he's stuck with us. Be completely honest. Have you ever felt that way? Think about how you often feel in the hidden recesses of your heart and what your actions, your faith practices, and your accepted limitations suggest. God is for us. I'm convinced if we ever really understood that, it would change the way we lived forever. God is for us. Does he put up with us? Is God stuck with us? I, I love this verse from Zechariah, Zechariah 2. It says, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. We don't use that terminology a lot. You know, he's the apple of my eye. She's the apple of my eye. You know what that literally means? It's the reflection. It's the, it's the little shiny part in your eye. When you take pictures, it's the pink eye, but it's, that's going a little deeper. It's the little reflection off the, off the cornea, off of the, the front of your eye, and, and it reflects back, and people see it, and they used to call that the apple of your eye. Literally saying, and, and let me maybe do a, a new version of this, whoever touches you, it's like poking me in the eye. Whoever touches you is... This, this, is, this person is very precious to me. It's very special to me. Whoever touches you is messing with the wrong person. Most of us feel this way. You can mess with me, but don't mess with my wife. You can mess with me, but don't mess with my kids. You can mess with me for sure, but don't mess with my grandkids. Now we're talking serious business here. If I show you a picture of my grandkids, there's one, only one answer that you can give. Oh, she is gorgeous. He is so smart. We all feel that way. You guys wrongly feel that your, your, kids are the, your grandkids are the smartest. My grandkids actually are the smartest kids that have ever lived. That's the way we feel, right? And God looks down at you and says, you know what he says? Look at them. They're so special. They're so amazing. That group in Redding, California, look at those guys. They're the apple of my eye. I love them. In the New Testament, the believers are promised the same power, the same victory that Jesus experienced. The New Testament says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will also empower your lives. This very same power. Jesus says he's getting ready to leave. He says, listen, you, you think this is a great thing. Greater things than these will be done when you believe. Who do I trust? John 10.10 says there's a contrast here. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What more does a Savior have to do to convince us that He is worthy of our love and our obedience and our adoration, our worship? He promised He will make us more than conquerors. Who do I trust? Here's the last question. Where do I find hope? And you say, well, it's the same thing. No, not necessarily. Where do I find hope? The writer says, come on, join in. This is where we find hope. And here's the problem that we have with this. Eugene Peterson has written a, a, a 
a tremendous book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I want to read just a couple of paragraphs because he really, he nails this. For some people, statements like that are red flags. They provoke challenges. I, confident and assured in the pulpit, he writes, I can announce the Lord is for us. God's strong name is our help. But as soon as I get out of the pulpit, someone is saying to me, look, I wish you'd be a little more careful about your pronouns. How do you get this hour? The Lord might be for you. He might be your help, but he is not mine. Listen to this. And then through the week, I get case histories of family tragedy, career disappointment, along with pessimistic recountings of world events. The concluding line is a variation on this theme. How do you explain that? You who are so sure that God is for me. And I am put on the spot, he writes. I'm put on the spot of being God's defender. I'm expected to explain God to his disappointed clients. I am thrust into the role of a clerk in the complaint department of humanity. I love this. This clerk is asked to trace down bad service, listen sympathetically to aggrieved patrons, try to put right any mistakes I can, and apologize for the rudeness of the management. Is that the way we look at God? It is a lot of times. God, why are you doing this? Why does my son have this? Why is my daughter experiencing this? Why is my spouse going through cancer? Why is this person dying? This is a good person. This is a godly person. Why, why, why? Eugene Peterson goes on. If I accept any of these assignments, I misunderstand my proper work. God does not need me to defend him. He doesn't need me as his press secretary explaining to the world that he didn't really say what everyone thought he said in that interview with Job or with that quotation of his word by Paul that was taken out of context or needs to be understood with the background paper that Isaiah wrote. The proper work for the Christian is witness, not apology. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we do, as apologists, need to say why we believe the Bible is true, but his point is well taken. Too many times we're, we're apologizing for God. God does not need an apology. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the Creator. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the beginning and the end. He knows all things. He, does, he can do all things. He is all love. He is all passion. He is all joy. He is all mercy. He is all holiness. He does not need us to apologize. He needs us to witness. He needs us to worship. He needs us to follow. Does not argue that it, it, it does not argue that uh, Psalm one twenty four does not argue that God's help. It does not explain God's help. It's a testimony of God's help in the form of a song. What Eugene Peterson is saying is absolutely true. Where do I find my help? When we begin to doubt God's love, His trustworthiness, or that we can place tr- our hope in Him, it generally is based on circumstantial evidence. Well, God can't be for me. I didn't get the raise. God can't be for me because I'm losing my house. God can't be for me because I'm, I'm suffering with cancer or heart disease. God can't be for me. I'm losing my hair. Oh, it's already gone. He can't be for me. Don't get me wrong. These things can cause a huge confusion. As I'm reading through the Bible, I, I cross-reference, and as I was reading through the New Testament, I cross-reference to John 13 and ran across a verse I've read so many times. But as Jesus is getting ready to leave in the upper room with the disciples, in John 13, 7, Jesus says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. You will thank me later. 
And sometimes when the confusion comes, we need to say, Lord, we don't understand now, but we will understand later. Meanwhile, we have a promise that's been proven for centuries. Our hope is not in this life, not in our abilities, not in what we can accomplish. Our hope is not in us. I want to close with this. We're going to get to the last scripture in just a minute, but I want to close with this. I want you to imagine, we have a couple hundred people here, I want you to imagine that you're the only one standing in the midst of a group at least three, maybe four times the size, but at least three times the size of everybody that's in this auditorium here today. Say you have a thousand people against you, and you stand up someday, and and you realize that you're the only one standing, you're the only one going against this crowd of a thousand people. And you realize the odds are impossible. You realize that there's no chance that you're going to win the the verbal battle or the physical battle. You're not going to be able to send the tide. A thousand people, are you kidding me? Without weapons, they can overwhelm you. There is no chance for you. There is no opportunity for you to go by yourself. You're one against a thousand. What in the world are you going to do? There's no way that you're going to win. At the end of the book of Joshua... Joshua points out that's exactly what Israel did. Look at Joshua 23, 10 and 11. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Folks, I don't know what the odds are in your life. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's your marriage, if it's your job, if it's your home, if it's your finances, if it's a personal thing with your family. God is for you. And it may be a whole lot more than a thousand to one, but my God has promised to fight for you. All he asks us to do is to carefully love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, you know each person who's here today. You are not surprised by any one of us. And you're not surprised by anything that we face. And you are not astounded at anything that has happened. We see you doing amazing things in our midst. And we know that, Father, you are able. You've raised some up with cancer that... Only because of you, Father, they're alive and well and flourishing. And we know others, Father, you have taken home. And we don't always understand, but we trust you. And with Job, we will say, though you slay us, yet we will trust you. And Father, there may be some here today who've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what I've been saying today sounds so foreign to them because it's it's only through the power of Jesus, just as Eric was, right, uh, was speaking at that National Day of Prayer, it's only through Jesus Christ that our minds are finally refreshed and we can right what's wrong in our thinking. So, Father, if, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, may they come to know you this morning. May they take just a minute to ask the question, to pray a prayer to believe, to trust, to hope in you. And Father, there are so many more here today that they come, they're confused by life, they feel beaten down by life, they feel like there's no hope, and they don't know who to trust. 
Father, may we understand that we are walking on water and need to reach out and say, Lord, save me. You fight for us. We'll give you the praise and the honor because it's in your presence, Father, that we find the answers that we could never find anywhere else. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.